All right. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. Yeah? Enjoying it? Have you guys gotten some coffee, maybe? Some people haven't, and you should. Um, <laughs> uh, my name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you're new, if you've been hanging out with us for uh, for a couple of weeks, on the chairs there are these cards. It says "Connect" in big, giant letters. And uh, man, fill one out, drop it in the offering basket when it goes through later on today during service. And uh, man, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to hang out with you. Um, but yeah, so drop those in the offering basket. So today we're going to start a new series titled The Beatitudes. So if you'd like to open or load your Bible, we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Now if you want to go ahead and go there in your scripture, or excuse me, in your Bible, man, I'm just going to ramble a little bit as we prep for our time today. And so last week we, we uh, ended our time briefly in the book of Philippians. We're actually in the middle of a series called Citizens uh, that's found in the book of Philippians. But we took a break for the summer. We'll pick that back up uh, in August. And for our time uh, throughout these next eight weeks, we're going to walk through the Beatitudes. And I got to tell you, after, after walking through this and studying it for the past couple of weeks, and then putting a little bit more time invested into it this week, I'm really stoked. I'm pretty pumped about Matthew chapter five. We're actually going to walk through uh, one Beatitude a week. We're going to walk through Matthew five verses one through 12 over the course of this summer. So we're going to amplify these, these verses. Uh, and I'm really excited for them. I hope you enjoy it, and I hope you enjoy this time. So ultimately, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to read the scripture. It's fairly short. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to I'm going to jump in by way of illustration and a few examples. Actually, a few questions for you. Uh, so so let me read, and then we'll we'll dive into our times. This is Matthew chapter five, verses one, verse one through three. And so you're right, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, that is Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare our time, actually, as we continue our time in worship, Lord, I pray that we recognize that you are gracious and that we are broken. Man, that you are merciful and, uh, and we are in need, not just, not just of forgiveness, but of new life. A reminder of redemption that is found in you. Lord, I pray that this time would glorify you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active and at work for your people, in your people, and through your people. Ultimately, I pray that in this time, reading through Matthew, our eyes would be fixed on the work of Jesus. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. 
So as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to I'm going to walk through kind of a couple of questions and we'll go through one at a time. These are all rhetorical as much as I'd love this to be interactive. This is going to be uh, a few rhetorical questions and uh, we're going to go through a lot in the beginning of this introduction before we actually dive into the verse uh, by way of setting it up. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote that happiness is the great question confronting mankind. And so my question to you is, are you truly happy? Are you truly happy? And if you are, how would you define it? How would you define happiness? I think everybody might have a different definition if we really began to dig. For some... Perhaps happiness is the American dream. But even when we dive into what the American dream is, each one of us might have a different response and a different perception of what that looks like. It might be, man, work really hard and obtain the goal that you want. Maybe it's the job that you're looking for. Perhaps it's the family that you want. Maybe it's the status that you'd like to achieve. Maybe you would define the American dream as that. And and if that's your definition, you would say, man, I think this is what happiness ultimately is. We can look back in history and walk through what a couple of people have said about happiness. And we'll walk through them briefly. Aristotle once said that happiness depends upon ourselves. Essentially, what he is saying is, man, happiness, it's kind of like Gatorade, right? Or Powerade. You make it, you, you call it what, it what you want it to, right? You know, Powerade is like sport is what you make it. So happiness is what you, whatever, whatever you say happiness is, that's what it is. Whatever it is, is happiness. Plato additionally said that the man who makes everything that leads to happiness depends upon himself and not upon other men has adopted the best plan for living happy. So same thing. Man, man, happiness is going to depend on me, not upon other people. And ultimately, happiness is what I call it. Happiness is what I define it as. Moving on, we can look at the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard's recipe, if you want to call it that, for fulfillment includes three things. It includes the aesthetic stage, it includes the ethics stage, and finally, it includes the religious stage. And I'll walk through each one briefly. The aesthetic stage, the goal of the individual is to satisfy their desires. Maybe that might be what you define happiness is, right? Whatever your desires are, you want to satisfy those desires, You want to do whatever it is you want to do because it's an innate desire that you have. It could be spending a ton of money. It could be making a lot of money. It could be uh, looking a certain way, having a certain title, achieving a couple of things. It's the aesthetic stage. The problem with the aesthetic stage, however, he writes, is that ultimately we will experience despair. If we put all of our eggs into the basket of aesthetics, we're going to experience despair because we realize that, man, as much as we try to quench these desires, 
our desire really isn't ever quenched. We're wanting more and more and something else or something new or something different or the next level, whatever that looks like. So that's the problem with the aesthetic stage. It ultimately ends up in despair. The second one is the ethics stage. In the ethics stage, what the individual now does, Kierkegaard writes, is that they remove themselves out of the equation and introduce sacrifice into their lives so that they sacrifice their preferences and their needs for someone else or others. It sounds virtuous, right? That they would sacrifice their preferences, that they would sacrifice things for, to meet your needs or to meet someone else's needs. However, the problem with the ethics stage is that not only is it surrounded and built upon morality, that we ultimately try to be good people and we try to do good things, the problem with the ethics stage is ultimately that it will end up in guilt. Now, it will end up in guilt because we won't do everything we're supposed to do. And even some of the things that we're supposed to do, we won't, right? And so inevitably what that does to us is that it brings guilt upon us. It brings guilt upon us because I said I would do this and I didn't. I knew I was supposed to do X, Y, and Z, and I chose not to. It brings upon guilt. Finally, Kierkegaard writes about the religious stage. He says that in the religious stage, this is ultimately where we're going to find true fulfillment, true happiness, In the religious stage, ultimately what we receive is forgiveness from God. That this is where it begins. That fulfillment begins with forgiveness from God. You see, when we receive forgiveness from God, two of the things I should say that it does is that it removes despair that the aesthetic stage brings, and it also removes guilt that comes with the ethical stage. Additionally, we realize that it is by grace, it is by God's grace that we are now just, that we are now right with God. But it is because of his righteousness and not ours. These are the three stages, if you will, that ultimately, hopefully, lead to fulfillment or happiness, according to Sorian Kierkegaard. Let's jump into some numbers, right? It's a little bit of some philosophy there. Let's jump into some numbers. The first thing is, man, I want to look at some statistics when it comes to happiness as per the United States of America. And there are some pretty revealing statistics about happiness. Now, I will say some of the numbers that we're going to walk through are slightly inaccurate because they're going to be based on certain variables that are going to differ from one another. So we're just looking at this kind of as a whole and uh, generality. But nevertheless, they seem to be very striking. 
The first one comes from uh, Ruth Whitman. She's the author of America the Anxious, a book written in 2017. It is hilarious. You should check it out. But nevertheless, two quick things that Miss Whitman writes about. She says that one third of Americans suffer from anxiety and day-to-day happiness. Ruth Whitman is a British writer and relocated to California a couple of years ago because of her husband's job. And one of the things that she noted when she tried to make new friends in whatever part of California they relocated to, she noticed that more and more people were talking about happiness and pursuing happiness and wanting to be happy. But more and more she learned that Jay just seemed so unhappy. And she found that to be a paradox, a great paradox that there is this giant pursuit of happiness, yet people find themselves exhausted and unhappy and unable to define it. Further, she writes that spiritual spending is a $10 billion industry. Now, when we talk about spiritual spending, we're talking about a ton of things. We're talking about memberships to yoga gyms, right? We're talking about learning how to meditate. We're talking about how to inevitably isolate ourselves from one another. We're talking about self-help books. You can go to any bookstore, major bookstore, and there are bookshelves of those books, right? You can look at enlightenment. You could look at several things that ultimately define what she calls spiritual spending. And at the end of the day, it's a $10 billion industry. Self-help books alone, it produces over $1 billion a year. Pretty lucrative. In 2011, a Harvard uh, Harvard Medical School quoted the National Center for Health Statistics, and uh, they ended up learning that patients who were 12 and older saw a 400% increase in anti-depression medication from 1988 to 1994, and then again from 2005 to 2008. An article coming out on the Huffington Post, an online newspaper, eh, ish, anyway. Americans who claimed to be happy, they surveyed a little over 2,500, and they ended up finding that in 2008 and 2009, about 35% of Americans said that they were happy. In 2011, that number shrunk and went down to 33%. In 2017, it came up a little bit and said that Americans were about 36% happy. Now, here's what's so alarming about these figures. Studies to determine not just what happiness is, but to figure out how many Americans are happy, these studies began in the 1970s. And since the 1970s, these numbers have remained generally about the same. Hasn't really gone, I think 36% is about as high as it's gone so far but it's generally been around the 30-some percent since the 1970s. Can't define happiness. Everybody has a different definition for it, everybody's, but everybody's looking for it. 
Everybody has a different definition for happiness, but everybody is lost finding it, is exhausted trying to look for it, and ultimately can't define it themselves. Oh, man. Sounds exhausting, I think. And it brings us, it brings us to the Sermon on the Mount. It brings us to the Beatitudes. So you can keep some of those figures in the back of your mind. We might touch on them a little bit later. The Beatitudes, which are recorded in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, are a part of a much bigger picture. They're a part of the Sermon on the Mount that is ultimately recorded in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. We're just looking at this small chunk. The Sermon on the Mount is incredibly important. And I'll tell you why. It's incredibly important because of its connection to the covenant established by God with his people at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Like, whoa, we're going way back. We are. And for the sake of time, these are the Cliff Notes version of Exodus 19. There is some slang that I will use. It's not in your Bible, right? In Exodus 19... God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, right? Even if you've never read a Bible, maybe you've seen the Ten Commandments Well, Chuck Heston is going up the mountain. Anybody? All right. Like it, right? It's people smiling. All of a sudden, you have a visual. Let's keep it going. Chuck, or Moses, is going up the mountain, right? And what does God do at the top of the mountain? Those of you who've seen the movie, what did he do? Well, he blinded him, yeah, but he hooks him up with the Ten Commandments as well, right? Which is very true. <laughs> Cliff notes, right? So he hooks him up with the Ten Commandments. He gives him the tablets. But upon giving him the tablets, one of the things that he's telling him as he's calling him up to the mountain, right? He says, don't tell other people to come up. If they come up, they will perish. There is a clear line of separation between me and them. Okay, that's in Exodus 19. So Moses goes up, gets the tablets, comes down, he's beautiful, and the tablets are with him. And what do the tablets end up serving? Not just that they are the commandments of God, but I think if we look at them, ultimately what the commandments teach us is that it is God holding up a mirror to us, telling us we can't keep them that we will fail. And all the more reason of a need for a savior. All the more reason of a need for a savior. Fast forward to Matthew 5. Jesus goes up to a mountain. And I'll touch on this a little bit more at the end. But Jesus goes up to the mountain and he invites the disciples, and he has them sit down. And it is a beautiful picture of God entering into human history and meeting us where we're at. That ultimately what we will see in the death of Jesus is that he removes the separation we have between us and the Father. The Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful picture of what is to come and what is happening. 
And equally, when he begins through the Beatitudes, or when he begins walking through the Beatitudes, similarly to the commandments of God, when Jesus walks through the Beatitudes, he recognizes that he is holding up a mirror to our face. And that we inevitably cannot accomplish these commandments apart from the transforming grace of the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of a little backdrop of the Sermon on the Mount and how it relates to the Beatitudes. Now, before we even dive into verse three, we're not even there yet. Because of this, because of that broad picture, and again, if you want a little bit more detail, I suggest you go through Exodus 19 through 21 and then read Matthew chapters five, six, and seven and see a greater correlation But before getting into all that, or we actually won't get into that today, if you're new, I love lists, man. It helps me stay organized. I think it might help you stay organized. If you don't like lists, then you're not as cool. So here are four things or four ways that the Sermon on the Mount, this includes the Beatitudes, here are four ways the Sermon on the Mount is interpreted. I feel all of this is important because we need to have context. We need to have context for what Jesus is saying. Here are four ways in which the Sermon on the Mount is interpreted. The first one is ultimately interpreted as legalism. That when you read through Matthew 5, verses technically 3 through 12, when you read through those verses, some will acquire a doctrine or a form of legalism. That they will quickly identify by saying, man, this is me and therefore I am better than or others aren't who I am. Legalism is a way of saying, uh, or better yet, I'll say it this way. Legalism is adding to God's word. And it is adding to God's word with a motivation of self-righteousness. But we're going to learn in verse 3 that we are to be actually emptied of our self-righteousness. So when we read through the Beatitudes, it is not about legalism. Number two, that they are unimportant. Some would call this licensing. Others would call this gospel gospel liberalism in the sense that because they are so hard to actually achieve and do, they're not that important. And because they're not that important, we can kind of pick and choose what we want from these set of Beatitudes and Scripture. We can kind of pick and choose what we like and then apply that to our lives, which is a false doctrine and something contrary to what we hold to called sola scriptura, scripture alone. That scripture is our ultimate authority. The third one is dispensationalism or traditional dispensationalism. Ultimately, what this is saying is that when Jesus gathers the disciples for the Sermon on the Mount and everything that he is talking about, he is ultimately talking about something that's going to happen over the next couple thousands of years. That it doesn't apply to the disciples who are in front of him, to those who are within an earshot of Jesus' teaching, and to the church. Not down with that. 
The fourth one, which is where I would agree is, and it's a lengthy one, but the fourth one is that the Sermon on the Mount with respect to the Beatitudes, but the Sermon on the Mount is a mirror. It is God holding a mirror to our face, not just so that we would see our sinful nature, but so that we would recognize that we are in need of grace, that we are in need of grace and, because we can end there, and that the Beatitudes are a picture of the kingdom of heaven. That why we strive for these Beatitudes isn't just because we want God to transform us alone as individuals, but because we want to see the church continually transformed. We want to see what the kingdom of heaven is ultimately going to look like. So it is a mirror held before us. It is a recognition that we are in need of grace because of our sinful nature and a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of heaven is to look like. Man, and if you're thinking, man, so the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like a bunch of weirdos and broken people, we would high five right now. Yes. That the kingdom of heaven belongs to the broken and to the humble. Further, here are four things that the Beatitudes do teach. Okay? Now, if you were raised in church culture, maybe you've heard teachings on the Beatitudes before. Maybe you've studied them in a Bible study or something like a community group. Maybe you've done all of those things, and that's really cool. So I just want to maybe iterate a few things. Number one, these are four things that they do teach. Number one, that the Beatitudes, all eight of these Beatitudes, that these are for all Christians. That this isn't for the spiritually elite that there is no elite group of Christians that obtain these characteristics. This is for the mundane, the ordinary Christian. That's us, the church. That these Beatitudes are for all Christians. Number two, that these are to be characteristics of all Christians. I think each one of us will vary in some of these things as we walk through this over the next eight weeks, but that doesn't mean that these aren't characteristics that we simply won't have. You see, our need for grace tells us that in new birth, there is new life. Character comes before conduct. Number three, none of these come naturally. I'm just making it worse. None of these things come naturally to us. Apart from grace, these beatitudes, these, these things that Jesus is going to tell us about, these characteristics that he says Christians are to have, that these apply for all Christians, none of them will come naturally to us apart from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, apart from the grace of of God. And finally, number four, all of these beatitudes point us to Jesus, that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, man, that we are to address things in our lives, but that because our identity is in Jesus, our lives are to be transformed 
So with that being said, that's the introduction. Let's jump into the text. I'll reread it one more time. Just verse three, perhaps because we've forgotten. This is what he writes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I talk about two things before we jump into it. (laughs) I keep teasing. My bad, but not really. Number one, where he says, blessed. The plain translation of the word blessed is happy. It's happy. Happy are those who are poor in spirit. Now, with that being said, going back to, man, all those philosophers and some of those statistics on happiness, I think one of the things we might do, because I know I did, is ultimately link happiness to what we think happiness is according to the American dream or according to some of those Greek and Danish philosophers. Bless you. But when it comes to... I think that was my wife. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) Blessed. What was I saying? It's happy. It's happy, right? Blessed, the translation of that is happy. But it is not this American idea that is contingent upon circumstance. See, many of you fall, fall under that. And it's, I mean, when we look at happiness today, how you and I might define it, Uh, define it, that might be accurate. That it is this idea that is contingent upon our circumstance. Man, you got that promotion. Uh, Man, you and your spouse are expecting. You got the house. You got the new car. You opened a new business. You got into the school you've been wanting to get into. Whatever your thing is, happiness is defined or is contingent based upon the circumstance. But when we look at the biblical definition of happiness, it is not actually contingent upon the circumstance. Instead, it is gracious favor that is given to us by God. Gracious favor that is given to us by God that is both permanent and enduring. It is permanent and enduring. That means it makes happiness objective, not subjective. The invitation to the poor in spirit is not a call to moral satisfaction, but to the grace of God in Jesus. And so he writes, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What what does it mean to be poor in spirit? One, he's not talking about materials, materialistic things. Right? He's not talking about materialistic things. When he, is, when he refers to the poor in spirit, he is referring to those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt. That all pride is now absent. All self-righteousness is absent. All self-effort is absent. All self-confidence is absent. To be poor in spirit isn't to put your best foot forward, but recognizing that you don't have a best foot to put forward. 
That is what it means to be poor in spirit. That we are spiritually bankrupt. And that is very contrary to what we just learned about a few statistics concerning happiness. That's incredibly contrary, wouldn't you say? Man, happiness is about, man, self-confidence, self-help, self-righteousness, pull yourself up from the bootstraps. You can do this. You can just believe in yourself. Keep trying. Keep going. Keep going. At some point, you'll get there. Well, what's happiness? I don't know, but we're going to try and figure this out together. And it ultimately leads to despair and guilt And it ultimately leads us to exhaustion. And what he says here, when it comes to the poor in spirit, those who are happy, gracious favor from God, is that they recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt and emptied, check it, emptied of all pride. Even now, some of you buckle up against that. Some of you buckle up against the emptiness of pride because of whatever happened this week that you think you're right on or because of whatever it is that you're doing that you think you're entitled to because that's what's going to give you great favor or that's what's going to give you ultimate satisfaction. We just walked through it that we will end in despair because the desire will never be quenched. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt, emptied of all pride. Poor in spirit means that we are empty vessels. That we are empty vessels. That is coming before God in confession and repentance of our sin. I'll talk about that a little bit more, but coming before God in confession and repentance of our sin broken over what sin does. Many times when it comes to Christianity, we begin to categorize our sin. This is small, that's big, that wasn't so bad, I felt like I had to. We categorize our sin. Yet, R.C. Sproul says that sin is cosmic treason. Sin is what got us kicked out of the garden because we inevitably thought that we were like God. Being an empty vessel is recognizing in our confession and in our repentance that we are broken over what sin does. It distances us from God. Confession and repentance reels us in. It reminds us of his gracious love and his abundant mercy. And when we talk about confession, I've I've talked about this uh, in better detail in other sermons. But when we talk about the confession of sin, we're talking about several things. I'm not just saying, man, you put something up on a whiteboard and then you walk away. What I'm talking about when we look at confession of sin, what we are talking about is number one, that we are agreeing with the authority of God and the charges brought before us. So there's an agreement that comes with confession of sin. It is that I recognize the authority of God and the charges that have been brought before me. 
Number two, once that is in place, it leads us, it leads us to the grace of God. First John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and, and I, I wish I could capitalize it, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So it is not just an agreement of the charges that are brought before us. It is this recognition of the grace of God. And once we recognize the grace of God that we don't deserve, yet he freely gives, we are led to hate our sin. Ah, the problem with Christians is that we really just don't hate our sin though, right? That's, that's the beef that we have within one another. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, we have nothing to offer God. Nothing. King David says it this way. This is Psalm 51, 16 through 17. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Here's what he is saying, right? He's ultimately talking about what pleases God and he is not banking. He is, he knows this. He is not banking on, man, I'm just going to, man, I'm just going to work this off. I'm going to do the good things. And then you're going to see that I'm doing the good things and we're good to go. We're back in a good relationship. We're standing with one another. He says, you don't want that. You don't want that. I just overlooked this and I never do it anymore. And man, that scared me. So I'm not going to touch that. You, you don't want that. What he says is, here's what he says. This is what pleases God. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That means penitent, a heart that is coming before God in repentance. He says, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Other translations say that what he delights in is a broken spirit and a humbled heart heart. To be poor in spirit is to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, to be emptied of all our pride so that we would recognize the grace of God and in that ultimately be confronted by God. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are broken and humble. That's what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are broken and humble as a result of their encounter with God's grace because they recognize that they have nothing. Their encounter with God's grace, not as a result of their effort or self-righteousness or self-confidence, but on what Christ has done and their recognition that they have nothing to offer. Matthew Henry wrote that if God's grace and goodness are his glory, then the glory of the gospel is the glory that excels for grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Christ. To be poor in spirit is to be spiritually bankrupt. It's to be spiritually bankrupt, to be an empty vessel, 
and to be confronted by God as a result of his grace. It means recognizing that we have nothing to offer before God. And so with that, here, here are my final thoughts. <clears throat> so earlier I talked about, you know, Exodus 19, right? So, so God tells Moses, come up, tell the rest of the people, right? He covenants with the people. But at the same time, he says, man, don't uh, tell them not to come up here. If they do, they're going to perish. It's the Cliff Notes version, Right? If they do come up here, they're going to perish. So there was a separation from God's people and God, right? There was this separation. And upon receiving the Ten Commandments, right, when we would sin or when God's people would fall short, they would ultimately offer a sacrifice, a scapegoat, so that that sacrifice would take away their sins. All of this is cliff notes. But that's ultimately what we talked about at the beginning. The life and work of Jesus is that Jesus came into human history and met us where we are at. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Matthew records that Jesus sat and invited the disciples to listen to him. And the, uh, the gospel of Luke says that there were others around him who heard. So anybody who could hear, he was down with, but he was talking to his disciples. And what that shows us is that God came down in the form of a man, entered into human history, met us where we were as a foreshadowing of ultimately what he could only do. And at the cross, Jesus removes the separation, the fence of separation between us and the Father by Jesus drinking the cup and receiving the wrath of God on the cross on behalf of sinners. And the Sermon on the Mount is a beautiful picture of that. It's Jesus coming down, meeting them where they're at, sitting with them, teaching them. And then later would be crucified. Later would endure the wrath of God. And enduring the wrath of God, he removes, he removes the fence of separation that we have with the Father. What we jacked up back in Genesis 3, what we distorted is now being restored through Jesus. To be poor in spirit is to be desperate, is to be in desperate need of Jesus. And I'll close with this. This is Psalm 32, 1 through 2. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, I think, uh, man, I think when we think about, when we think about happiness, I think each one of us As I mentioned earlier, I think each one of us would have our own definition. I don't know, if we're honest, how easily we would look to you 
to define happiness. But I do know that many people, including people who are here today, are in search of it. And Lord, after walking through verse 3 of the Beatitudes, Lord, my prayer is that we would recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we are in deficit. And all the the self-help and the self-righteousness and the self-confident and the self-efforts we have count toward nothing other than our exhaustion, our despair, and our guilt. And so God, I pray that we recognize that we are broken before you and to receive new life, to receive redemption is to confess and repent of our sins and trust in your son, Jesus. So God, we ask that you would be and do a work in us right now, not just because it's Sunday, but because it is an opportunity for our hearts to be transformed as we walk into the start of our week, as we look and fix our eyes upon you. And as we continue in prayer, we walk into a time of tithes and offerings. This is, Lord, where we give you our stuff. This is where we give you our stuff because, man, we are not held to those things. In fact, Lord, my prayer is that our desire would be for your will to be done. For your mission, for your kingdom to be expanded. So break our hearts to relinquish the control we think we have or the control that we think we're entitled to. And let us look to you so that our desires are ultimately satisfied, not to our material gain. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.